Amen. Eddie, come here. We're just pulling out all the stops today. Come here, Eddie. What does that song mean to you, Eddie? What does that song mean to you, brother? I wasn't expecting this. That is my song for Celebrate Recovery. If it wasn't for God's grace, I'd be wandering down that road with nowhere to go. But with his grace, I can stand here today and celebrate 10 years. Amen. And for this church. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Eddie. 10 years. Ain't no joke. 10 years. Thank you, Eddie. Were it not for grace, we'd all be in the same sinking boat. Thank God for his amazing grace. You know, I love uh, what an incredible resource it is to be able to call Bill Sherman with three days notice and say, hey, can you pinch hit for me? Uh, my whole family has COVID apparently. And, and him say yes and do such a great job with his text from John. And one of the things that Bill says that I love so much is about grace. And he says, there's enough love to go around. Enough love to go around. Isn't that true? So many churches have split and experienced so much pain and, and, and problems in those churches because people don't realize there's enough love to go around. There is no scarcity in God's economy. There's enough love to go around because his grace is amazing grace. Thank you, Bill, for your continuing ministry here at Woodmont Baptist Church. Really grateful to be able to call not many preachers, no other preacher besides me has the, the option to just call Bill and say, can you pinch hit at our church on, on Sunday? And for him to do that, just so wonderful. Thank you. Today, we're gonna get a two for one. Okay, I already told you it's not gonna get on the air, but just hang tight. I, I, the, the richness of this passage will bless you, I promise, if you will let these words speak to your heart today. Uh, I'm gonna cover uh, the, the passage that we were meant to cover last week, Ephesians 4, 1 to 11, and then we're gonna hit 12 through 20 today as well. And really, they're two distinct passages, but the theme is the same, how the gospel changes everything. It's amazing how we're going to get a glimpse into the Apostle Paul's ministry here in Galatia and his relationship with the people in these churches that he planted and how the gospel is really the center of that relationship. Believing this good news about who God is and what he's done for us through Jesus actually changes how we relate to one another. And Paul's not concerned that the people in Galatia are, are forgetting him. He's not worried about them neglecting him. He's concerned that they're forgetting the gospel. He's concerned that they're neglecting the gospel. It's not about his own pride. It's about the gospel. It's a gospel issue. The core message that he and Barnabas so clearly preached and proclaimed to them just a few years prior to this letter. And what we see in chapter four is kind of this comprehensive picture of discipleship that's going on in Galatia. Paul's not trying to form his own image in these people. He's not trying to reproduce himself. He's trying to form the image of Christ in these people. He's trying to conform them to the image of Christ. So that's the outline for today. We're gonna see this text shows how Christ formed in you is the goal. And how does that happen? It happens through the gospel, through the message of Jesus Christ. And that message changes everything. 
So that's the outline. We're going to see this text unfold again in two parts. The first part is this gospel summary in verses 1 through 11. A gospel summary. Martin Luther once said that it's imperative that we preach the gospel over and over again and tell it to people. And in his very German kind of way, he said, and beat it into their heads continually. And I think that's what we're going to see here today again is another summary message of what the gospel is. Another description of who God is and what he's done for us, his beloved children. Chapter 3, just some context. Remember, Paul went back 2,000 years into Jewish history and biblical history to zoom out and help us understand that the gospel in its context, in, in what is happening in the biblical story of salvation. He showed us how three key figures in the biblical narrative, Abraham, Moses, and the greatest figure of all, Jesus, how they fit into God's perfect plan. Abraham was given a promise, right? God gave him a, a, a unilateral promise. He told him that he would make a great family out of Abraham's family, and through that family, all the world would be blessed. And then several hundred years later, God sent a great prophet, Moses, to deliver God's family out of bondage and slavery and to give them a set of rules and regulations that we call the law, the Hebrew scriptures that were uh, given to Moses at Sinai, the Torah, these rules and regulations. And that law didn't nullify the covenant promise made to Abraham. No, it was just a matter of fulfilling it and made it more necessary. It made the promise given to Abraham more urgent because it showed us how desperately we needed that blessing that was to come unilaterally from God through the family of Abraham. And finally, Paul showed us how the promise was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who came to form a new covenant people, a new kind of family through which God would now work in the world to reverse the curse of sin and death and suffering. So now in verses 1 to 11, Paul's going to tie it all together again by reminding us, first off, of what our condition was under the law. We have to know how bad things were before we can appreciate how good the good news actually is. Before we can appreciate what difference makes Jesus makes in our lives now, we have to understand what things were like prior. Look at verses 1 and 2. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. You know, I don't keep up with a lot of celebrity gossip or celebrity news, but apparently pop star Britney Spears was under this, uh, this deal called a conservatorship. Do you know about this? You're embarrassed to admit it if you do know. <laughs> she had a health issue, mental health issue in 2008, and the, the courts set up this system where her father was in charge of all of her assets, all of her business dealings. She couldn't sign a contract. She couldn't buy a new car. She couldn't do anything without her father's permission. This manager over her entire life for almost 14 years from the age of 26, she's my age almost exactly, from the age of 26 for 14 years, her entire world 
was under the guardianship of her dad. She couldn't do anything without his advice and without his permission. Finally, in November of last year, Brittany's $60 million estate was given back to her and the conservatorship was ended. I hope she makes good choices with her life going forward and her newfound independence and ownership. But this is the kind of idea that Paul is describing here in verses one and two. He already compared the law to a, a, a mean prison warden, to a, a bad babysitter. We talked about how he compared the law to a, a mean uh, babysitter, but now he's using the language of trustees who supervise and, and manage everything that really belongs to us, but yet we cannot access it. The law is like uh, this bank that holds everything in check until someday when we reach a certain age, we can come into that ownership and make it ours once and for all. Until then, though, the child can't do anything for themselves. They have no power, and more importantly, they have no freedom. They have no freedom under the law. Then it gets worse. Look at verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This, world, this word elementary it can mean two things. One, it can mean like elementary, like for us, elementary school, like basic stuff, like two plus two is four, like really basic understanding, which would mean that when we were under the law, we had a very basic understanding of who God is and what he's done for us. We had a very surface, very uh, kindergarten understanding of who God is. But this word can also mean like our word element. It can mean the base things of the world. It has had this other meaning of kind of the, the basic materials of the world. This means that before salvation arrived for us in Christ, the law exposed how we were enslaved to the basic things of this world that so easily ensnare people all the time. Money, power, greed, the, the want for more, anger, lust, envy, Pride, all these things that are just base level things in the world that so easily enslave us. But there's good news. We can't wait to hear this, right? We can't hear it enough. I have to preach the gospel to myself continually in order to bring myself back to what Scotty Smith calls gospel sanity. We get so crazy in our thinking that we have to have the gospel restore us to gospel sanity. I love that phrase. Let's hear now about how things have become infinitely better for us now that the conservatorship is over and that we are free in Christ. This is our condition in Christ now. That's point number two on your outline. Here's the good news, what our condition is in Christ. Look at verses four and five. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. It's a great Christmas text, isn't it? A great Advent text. We hear this read often during December, but it's so rich, isn't it? It's so rich when the fullness of time had come, when it became time for God to finally put the key piece of his plan into action. God sent his son all of history was changed forever 
Everything before Christ had pointed and led up to this moment, and everything that happened after the advent of Christ pointed back to that moment. It literally split time into B.C. and A.D. All of history forever was changed because the advent of Christ is the climax in the story of everything ever. It's the point after which nothing can ever be the same because God himself showed up. God didn't abandon us to figure things out for ourselves, to manage our sin. A lot of you are just trying to manage your sin problem. You can't do it. You can't manage it. You can't. It'll fail every time. But God sent his son to manage it for us. That's not something we just need to celebrate at Christmas. It's something we need to celebrate daily. That God came to rescue us. I love that song we sang, Great Things. The hero of heaven. That's, that's a biblical image. That's a very biblical song. I know it's a contemporary new song for a lot of you, but it's very rich text and very good words. God sent the hero to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. I think there's a lot of things being written about superhero movies now, why superhero movies are so popular. You know, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, those movies have grossed billions of dollars. What is it about superheroes that are so compelling to us as people? Obviously something is. I think it's because we resonate with this idea that there is someone beyond ourselves, someone who's bigger than us, someone who has more power than we do, who can come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We all need a hero. We know that deep down, that we need a hero. And that's what Jesus is. He came to live a perfect life among us, to give us his perfection in exchange for all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our suffering. He gave us words of life, things like visit those in prison and care for the sick and care for the hungry. He gave us words of instruction with authority as God himself. He took on flesh. He became like us in order to redeem us. Now the conservatorship is over because he died an atoning death on the cross and he rose in victory. He rose in glory, conquering the power of sin and death forever. That's good news. I hope you're not tired of it. I hope you're not sick of hearing that. I'm gonna preach it every Sunday. <laughs> There's lots of theories again about superheroes, but we have the one true superhero who's actually better than any superhero imaginable. The gospel isn't just that God sent his son to rescue us and to save us from our sins. That can kind of tend to be a reductionistic view of the gospel, right? Because it's all about me. Jesus came and died for my sins so I can go to heaven someday. The end. That's, that's not, you're missing the big picture. The gospel is so much bigger than that. There's more to the story than just dying and going to heaven someday. God's not done fixing What's wrong with this world? And yes, he's doing it through his new covenant family. But how can a bunch of ragtag disciples, how can a bunch of people, someone was talking about, you know, how much uh, poetry and scripture Bill's memorized. And I was like, I can't do that. My brain doesn't work that way. That's amazing. You know, I, how can we who are, inf you know, so fallible, we who are so feeble and frail, how can we possibly advance God's kingdom? How can we go out and change the world? How can we overcome sin? How can we overcome death? 
like Jesus has? Is it by amassing wealth and leveraging it for the kingdom? No. Is it by having more clever programs and more attractive stuff and, and really cool music? And, you know, I had a friend who quit going to, to church during COVID. Just, you know, he grew up in church, you know, a Christian guy, just quit going. A lot of people did uh, quit going. I was talking to him about it. And, and he goes to a more, he used to go to a more attractional kind of church. You know, was, hey, come and join the party. He said, I'm tired of the show. I'm tired of the show. I said, man, I, I know I, I happen to be the preacher there, but I invite you to Woodmont because there's no show at Woodmont. These worship leaders, can you tell they mean it when they sing? Can you tell they actually believe it when they sing and lead us? That's, that's an incredible gift that this church has. We're not trying to wow anybody. We do things as excellent as we can to honor the Lord. You should see the, the late nights that Nate puts in practicing here. I, I see him here all the time practicing. Happy birthday, by the way, to Nate and Sally today. Sally, we were singing that song about, you know, we dance in your kingdom. I was kind of laughing like nobody dances here. And I saw a few choir, I saw Dewey Dunn's leg going like this. And I saw Sally was getting after it too on her birthday. So I, I, I like this. This is a little freer than we're, we're used to here at Woodmont. But we're celebrating this good news. And you can dance and you are free in the Lord to do whatever that you need to do. But again, what is it that, that we have as a resource to help us as a church accomplish God's given mission for the church? Is it by having more degrees, more training programs, more uh, experts, more legendary figures like Bill Sherman? No, none of that is gonna help us if we don't have the Holy Spirit moving in power in our church, in our lives, individually and corporately. We can only accomplish God's purposes because he has sent not only his son, but he sent his spirit. That's the next point on your outline. He sent his son. He's done these two great things for us. When the time was ripe, the fullness of time, he sent his son to us to do what we could not do, the ultimate superhero. And then he sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts. Look at verses six and seven. Because you are sons and daughters, the Greek means children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God has sent his spirit for everyone who's died to themselves and received the new life through a new birth in Jesus Christ. The spirit has come into your life and taken up residence in your soul. You have the assurance that you are indeed a child of God, not through any formula. Did you see the, the priest in Arizona that did thousands of baptisms that have now been uh, invalidated by the, the Vatican because he said one word wrong? Did you hear about this? Thousands of baptisms that the church has said, nope, they're all, those people aren't really baptized because he said, we baptize you instead of I baptize you. That one word, they said, nope, you're not really baptized. You're going to hell <laughs> because of this word that was wrong. That's not what we believe here. It's not any formula that makes you a child of God. It's not even your baptism. It's a powerful symbol of an inner a reality. It's an outward sign of something that's happened inside of you. But it, baptism doesn't save you. Neither does the words that the preacher says doesn't save you either. 
what saves you, what proves that you're saved is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your soul crying out to God in a whole new kind of way that proves that you relate to God as father, dear father now. No longer as an overlord, but as a loving, good, good father. What makes us a child of God is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But the gospel isn't just a, a cool idea. It's not just a great doctrine that, that God sent his son, that God sent his spirit. There's more to it than that. It's, it's a changed inner reality that necessarily leads to a changed outer reality. When you are born again, again, it proves itself in how you then live. The gospel is a consequential faith. I love that word, consequential. Christians who believe this about Jesus should prove it in how we actually live. There are consequences, good ones and difficult ones sometimes, for believing the things that we believe. It bears on every facet of our lives, which leads us to the third part of this section. How then shall we live? How then shall we live? Verses 8 through 11. Uh, read these verses with me now, because knowing God changes everything. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. We call those idols, right? Idols, things that aren't God, is what you were enslaved to. Knowing God changes everything, though. You're no longer enslaved to the basic things of the world. You've been adopted into God's family. You know him as father now. Remember that we're children, not slaves. That's point A on your outline. We're beloved children now, not slaves. We know him as father. And yet, we're, we're you know, it's like orphan Annie who, who've been adopted by Daddy Warbucks and everything that's his is ours now. We get to live in the big house and have all these blessings that are ours in Christ. Why would we ever go back? And yet so many people do. Remember in the first and, and best Matrix movie, again, you millennials get all my references, probably the rest of you don't. When Cypher, the, one of the bad guys, he betrays everybody because he wants to go back into the Matrix. He's been woken up, he's been uh, born into this reality, and he doesn't like it. It's gray, it's dark, it's dismal. Humans are on the brink of extinction, they're in a war, the food's no good. He'd rather go back to living the lie and, and be blissfully ignorant. This is what happens with people in Galatia, apparently, and people in our world too. They just want to go back to their old life because it's too hard. G.K. Chesterton, the, the great British theologian, said that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. The Christian ideal has been tried and found difficult. <laughs> People just don't want to do it. Look at verse 9. Apparently this is the deal in Galatia. Now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, that's an important distinction, God knows us and he likes us. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, the basic things of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You want to go back into slavery. This is echoing what the Israelites said after Moses miraculously led them out of bondage, out of slavery. They were human property. 
And they walked on dry land through the Red Sea. They were given manna in the wilderness. They were given water from the rock. And what did they say? This is amazing. Thank you, God. No. They said, we want to go back. They had melons in Egypt. We missed melons. We want to go back to being slaves. How pathetic. How pathetic to go back for the the food in slavery when God has given you everything that you need and delivering you to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. God has good purposes for us. Why would we ever go back into slavery? Again, the Christian life was never meant to be easy, but it was meant to be good. It was meant to be life-giving. It was meant to be true. It was meant to be authentic. It was meant to lead towards real flourishing and true thriving. Legalism is relatively easy. Living in grace, in many ways, is hard. With legalism, you can be right just by following the rules. But with grace, you have to trust that God actually knows you and loves you and is able to cover all your mistakes. I've had people in my office tell me, Nathan, you don't know what I've done. God can't forgive me. There's no way God can forgive me. If that's you, come to celebrate recovery tomorrow night at seven o'clock and hear the stories about people who've hit rock bottom because whatever you've gone through, it's probably been worse for someone else. And God is capable of saving you and reaching out to wherever you are. The Galatians couldn't accept that. They couldn't accept that God welcomes them just freely into his arms covered by the blood of Christ. They couldn't accept it. Verse 10 says they were still observing days and months and seasons and years. They were in this legalistic trap of trying to to be right with God by observing the calendar in the right way. They're missing the point. That led Paul, their spiritual father, to honest lament in verse 11. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I'll never forget my college mentor, who we just loved and respected so much. He took me and some of my friends on a college retreat and we got to be leaders. And I was a leader on the retreat. It was, it was, a, it was we were college students. It was a retreat for youth. They were seventh through 12th graders. And I was hanging out with some of the high school boys who thought I was so cool because I was a college kid who played guitar and you know, they thought I was pretty cool and they were telling some jokes. So I told a joke. It was completely inappropriate, completely inappropriate but I thought it was funny, so I told it. And I wanted them to think, you know, I was this cool college kid. And I'll never forget, we were laughing, and I looked over my shoulder, and my mentor was standing in the doorway. He'd heard it. He'd heard me say this joke. I was crushed. He didn't say anything, but I knew I had let him down. He had invested so much in me, meeting every Friday morning at 6.30 for Bible study, for prayer, for book study. And I had just blown my witness in front of a bunch of high school boys trying to be cool. You know, this is what Paul feels for these people. He's invested so much in them. It really should cause us to think, who has invested in you spiritually? Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it was a a youth worker. Who has invested in you? Are you letting them down? Are you letting them down? Or are you honoring their investment in your life with how you are walking in your discipleship journey. That leads us to this last section of the text, verses 12 through 20, 
where Paul addresses these spiritual children. Paul and his spiritual children. Remember earlier, he called them stupid. He said, you, Isaiah's not here, I can say that. That's a bad word at our house. We don't say stupid, but he called them foolish, Galatians. One translation says idiots is what he's calling them, but he's, he's saying this in love. He loves them as spiritual children. Look at verse 12. He's going to first give them, this is the first imperative in the whole book of Galatians. He's going to tell them to follow his example. Follow my example, he says in verse 12. Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What Paul's saying is that I lived like you as a Gentile. I dropped everything that was not of Christ. All my Jewish credentials, I didn't come in with my Pharisee card. I didn't show you my degree from studying with Rabbi Gamaliel. I dropped all that and became as you are. Now become as I am. How is Paul? He's free. Paul's learning to thrive and to live in the joy and freedom in Christ. And the Galatians are back in this yoke of slavery. Paul's saying, live like me, live free. Throw off that yoke and grow in the grace and in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul's found a better way to live, and he wants us to live that way too. And also, he, he just drops anything that's pretentious that might hinder them from becoming like him in the freedom of Christ. It reminds us how we should drop everything in our lives that it is not of Christ. Our political affiliations, ooh, ouch. Our favorite sports team, our social status, whatever. We should let it go in order to reach others for Christ. That's what Paul says later in, in 1 Corinthians 9. You've heard this before. Verses 22 and 23, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. I know a guy from Michigan who lives in East Tennessee now. Guess what his accent is like? He works in the service industry. He speaks with an East Tennessee accent. He's become like the people he's ministering to in order to relate better to them and be more effective in his ministry. Did y'all hear the, the clip of, who was the coach? Brian Kelly at LSU, Jim, did you see that? At the basketball game, he came out, Jim's just shaking his head. He came out of the basketball game. Brian Kelly's from like New Jersey or something, and he comes out in Baton Rouge at a basketball game and says, y'all, I'm so happy to be here. I can't wait to get started. And, and you know, this thick Louisiana accent, and everybody's like, that's not how he used to talk. He's becoming all things to all people. I'm not saying put on an accent. What I'm saying to you is drop anything that is going to hinder you from leading someone to become more like Christ. If it's your pretentiousness, let it go. If it's your, your, you're so gung-ho about one issue, maybe it's not a gospel issue. It's time to drop it in order to seek the best for someone else. And it was a mutual relationship that Paul had with these people of blessing. Seeking someone else's good leads to our good too. So starting at the end of verse 12, we get a glimpse into the Galatians' attitude towards Paul. We're going to see what their attitude was towards Paul. It was uh, one of blessing and goodness. Look at verse 12 through 14. You did me no wrong, he says. You know it's because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me 
as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus even. I'll never forget that the second time I went to Australia for a summer of ministry there by myself, I, I got so sick on the plane, it just hit me. I just came down with this, some kind of horrible sickness, spiked a fever, I almost passed out. We landed in Sydney and I was like woozy. And the pastor who was there to pick me up with his wife said, man, we gotta get you to a doctor right now. We went straight to the doctor. He took my temperature, put the thermometer in my mouth and said, wow, 40 degrees. I said, 40, I'm dead, oh no, it's Celsius. I didn't realize it was Celsius degrees. And then he said, you have a sinus infection. Take this slip of paper to the, the chemist. And I said, chemist, you have a chemistry person? That's what they call pharmacists over there. I didn't know that, uh, I do now. And I got a prescription for antibiotics and by the next day, felt so much better. They had received me as a missionary there to help their church. They got me the help that I needed. They didn't treat me as a burden. And I was so much better thanks to their care. That's how the Galatians treated Paul. We don't know what his malady was. Some people think it must have been his eyesight. He was a trial to them, but they received him as Christ even, as Christ himself. Why do we think it was his eyes? Look at the next verse, verse 15. It says, what then's become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. He said, now what's become of your, you used to welcome me as Christ and now you, something is wrong. You're not listening to me. You're going a different direction from what I have told you. This reminds us, we should think about this. They had a good thing going. They had worked to build a foundation with Paul of mutual love and respect. And now Paul's calling them out in love for turning away from the gospel and going back into slavery. Why is Paul doing that? Because he can't stand them? Because they're so stupid? No, he speaks the truth to them because he loves them. Look at verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? I think it was Russell Moore who worked at the SBC who wrote a letter to SBC leaders and quoted this verse. Have I become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? This verse should give us pause. Do we surround ourselves with yes people? Do we prefer to live in an echo chamber of people who already share the same ideas and opinions that we do? Or are we open to correction? Do we have the humility to listen to what others have to say? Can we maintain a relationship with people who may disagree with us by speaking the truth in love? Do we receive others only when we like what they have to say? Apparently the Galatians love Paul and he was preaching good news. They were like, cool, this guy's great. But now he's telling them to, to ditch the, the calendar observations and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not sure we like this guy. And that leads to our final section where Paul reveals some of his attitude towards the Galatians, verses 17 through 20. Here Paul's gonna contrast how he feels about these precious spiritual babies that he's given birth to versus the Judaizers. Remember the background, the false teachers who've come into Galatia, how they feel about them. Look at verse 17. They, the Judaizers, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They wanna shut you out that you may make much of them. You know what flattery is? This is flattery. Flattery is lying to someone in order to gain some sort of selfish advantage. They were speaking lies. They were flattering the Galatians only so that the Galatians would flatter them back. 
And, and again, they're, they're manipulating them through falsehoods. Paul says that the Judaizers have been shutting out anyone who preaches the actual gospel and doesn't agree to this arrangement of mutual flattery. It's a political tactic to form an exclusive club of power and influence, but it's built on pretense. Let's not fall for these kinds of clubs. They're available to us all the time. It's not a bad thing to, to honor someone who actually does something good. Look at verse 18. This is not flattery. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. He's saying, you know, you, you guys have honored me. You've shown me a lot of honor. Not even when I'm around, you're still making much of me. Thank you. Just like you're making much of the Judaizers. But now they had to choose. You can't follow two leaders. Are they going to associate? Are they going to fellowship with Paul? Or are they going to choose to associate and fellowship with the Judaizers and fall for the, the club of manipulation and flattery? Who would they honor as having their best interest at heart? It's clear that even Paul was frustrated with them, even though he was frustrated with them. He loves them as a spiritual father and even as a spiritual mother. Look at verses 19 and 20. My little children for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What a good pastor Paul is. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I'm perplexed about you. He, I love the cotton patch version. Have you heard of the cotton patch version of the gospel? Clarence Jordan, it's not Jordan, but you say Jordan, like Jordan hair. He says, my children over whom I agonize again and again until Christ takes shape in you. I surely do wish I could be with you right now and change my tone of voice because you've got me all befuddled. You've got me all befuddled. The gospel changes everything. When we remember who God is and what he's done for us in Christ, it changes how we relate to God and to each other. We long to see others experience the new life that the gospel brings. We love them as spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. We also honor those who have served as spiritual fathers and mothers to us. Don Abel was spiritually fathered in some ways by Jim Askew. Praise God for that. A lot of you know the story of John Newton who wrote the song Amazing Grace. The gospel changed his life in a dramatic way. He was an only child in the 1700s. He lost his mom when he was only seven years old, and he went to sea at the tender age of 11 and later became involved, in the words of one of his biographers, in the unspeakable atrocities of the African slave trade. John Stott says that Newton plumbed the depths of human sin and degradation when he was 23, March 10th, 1748, his ship was in imminent peril of, of foundering on the rocks in a terrific storm. He cried out to God for mercy, and he found that mercy. He was truly converted. He was born again, and he never forgot how God had had mercy upon him, a former slave trader, a former blasphemer, and he sought diligently to remember what he'd previously been and what God had done for him. 
in order to imprint it on his memory, he had written in bold letters and fastened across the wall over the mantelpiece of his study the words of Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Let's not go back to our chains. Our chains are gone. We've been set free by God's amazing grace. Let's live, therefore, in the freedom of the gospel as we invite others to join us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good news. We can never repay you for what you've done for us in Christ, but I pray that you would help us to live lives like John Newton's, lives that are spent marveling at your goodness and grace, returning praise and worship and thanksgiving to you all the days of our lives. Lord, I pray that the gospel would so change us that our very lives would be cruciformed, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that you would form Christ in us so that our walk resembles more and more the walk of Jesus and less and less our former way of life. Lord, we thank you for making us new from the inside out, for sending your son to rescue us, for sending your spirit to live in us. Lord, help us to walk in the gospel reality everywhere that we go, always giving you the credit, always giving you the glory and the praise, inviting others to live in the joyous, blessed freedom that can only be found in knowing you as our Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now. We're going to sing John Newton's song, Amazing Grace. Aaron didn't even know I was going to close the sermon with that story, and he'd already picked Amazing Grace for our hymn of response today. If you've never responded in your heart of hearts to God's amazing grace, there's no better time to do so than right now. To surrender all that you are and say, Lord, I'm getting off the throne of my life. I'm putting you in your rightful place. I'm surrendering everything I am to you and receiving the free gift of salvation that is offered to us through Jesus Christ alone. Maybe you need to join Woodmont Baptist Church. You've been sitting on the sidelines for a while and you say, it's time I jump in. We're getting back to doing men's uh, breakfast uh, in March and April and May. Uh, we're gonna be doing some more discipleship things. Women's Bible study kicks off in a couple weeks. I important things are happening here to form us in the person of Jesus Christ. If you wanna be a part of it, and we believe in church membership here and being a part of what God's doing. We're not a perfect church. We don't have a perfect pastor. We don't have a perfect worship leader, but we are on a journey together. And if you wanna join us on that journey, then we'd love to receive you. Whatever it is you need to do during this hymn of response, let's stand and sing together of God's amazing grace. May you sing it like you've never sung it before. Mm -hmm.